0: There is a poem by Rumi, one of my favorite poets and mystics. And I want to recite it because this is kind of how I feel sometimes at this point of the retreat when we have so much that has happened and occurred, so many experiences and expressions and insights and this gathering here together. And the poem goes like this Do you think I know what I'm doing? (laughs) That for one half breath I belong to myself, as a pen doesn't know what it's going to write, or a ball doesn't know where it's going to bounce. And it's a little like that Do you think I know what I'm doing? And I think sometimes you think we know what we're doing. <laughs> Maybe you hope you know. Hope you th- you know what we're doing. <laughs> we we know what we're doing. <laughs> but you know, so much of what we've been exploring and opening up to is that which is not in control. You know, we've been exploring this way that we take this sense of self to be who I am, this mind, and all of its thoughts and images and definitions and the emotions and all of that, and that bundle that gives rise to a sense of self, of me. And this is me, and I know this is me. And then from there, this sense of being able to then direct and control our experience But as we really explore this, and this is one thing that happens in the meditation, is that view that there is actually someone who can direct and control our experience starts to break up for all different kinds of factors. One is starting to have insight into the thoughts themselves, the mind itself, to see that this this habitual, repetitive thinking this relentless thinking that goes on and on and on and on, variety of different kinds of thoughts and memories and stories and associations, and we look at that and we start to bring some doubt about whether that's actually defining who we are. Can I really believe that whole mass of habitual thought? And we ground and we breathe and we, we start to have access to something that is not thought, five senses and some the silence or the gaps in between the experiences when things get quiet and still. And things start to break up, this kind of solid way that we perceive things, we perceive ourself, we perceive others, the world. And our view starts to shift. We just can't believe things quite the way we believed them before. And this is what happens when we come into our meditation and we really start to pay attention and really look and investigate and see what the nature is of this existence. This existence here, this mind-body existence, this existence out there, this nature, this world, what is this? You know, we start to really question some of our views and ideas, these, these fixed beliefs. And this is really the, one of the purposes, the purpose of our practice, of our meditation is really to begin to challenge the ways that we perceive things to be the way they are. One time when I was um, I've done some practice with someone I call my teacher Sopni Rinpoche who's a Tibetan lama who uh, comes to America quite a lot to teach. Just in passing in one of his teachings he said if we understand that things aren't the way they appear there is a lightness in the mind. If we understand that things are not the way they appear, there is a lightness in the mind. And I think it's a real simple kind of pointing for us because if we understand that things aren't the way they appear, then we're not um, grasping onto those things to give us some kind of happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction. We're not imbuing people and things with a certain kind of fixed meaning that you know you're going you're like this so you're going to be like this with me and this is what's going to happen in the future and and you're supposed to, you've been like this in the past you're going to be like this in the present and the future you know all this kind of fixed ideas of the way we perceive things in time and space and we start to have more of a sense that maybe <laughs> not like that we try to fix things or hold on to things or imbue things with a particular kind of meaning this expectation that we want from things from people from life and some sense that this is what we're supposed to get You know, and this is really the position of the ego, the position of the self. There is some kind of expectation or demand that things are going to go according to my wishes. But it is all kind of, you know, as we've been speaking, it's all all that kind of security. The ego wants this sense of security because in the face of the truth, what is there for us? What are we really going to get from anything? That's going to bring us that lasting fulfillment or that happiness. Ultimately, everything passes away. Everything. So, no matter what we're holding on to, it's not going to give us that lasting fulfillment. So, we start to question, hopefully, we start to question this way of perceiving our reality. When I was um, I was one of the places that I go to teach, which I love very much, is a particular retreat center in New Zealand, and it's called Te and it's in a beautiful, remote um, area of no, the north, the North Island. It's only there's just a few miles to the sea on each side. It's a peninsula that goes straight up. It's very very beautiful, and it's a kind of semi-tropical rainforest. And there's the, the retreat center itself doesn't have any electricity or uh, even running water. The water is pumped up from the stream and filtered through a filtering system. And all the electricity <coughs> is on, uh, um, uh, I think, solar and then some generators when they need it. So the, so, the, so the place is extremely quiet and extremely beautiful, no electrical noises and no extraneous lights from even, even cities or towns nearby. And so at night, this particular time I was there a few months ago, um, the, the night skies were absolutely clear. And because there's no um, electricity and no lights, it is just a vast night sky just filled with stars and galaxies and black holes and it's just you have a sense of the whole universe just right above the head and there's a sense of just feeling so infinitely small so tiny just a speck in the face of that vast sky and the sky reminds me of one of the when I was small when I was little I used to go to the uh, planetarium and it's where maybe you, you must have those here where you go in and they, just, they, they, they fabricate the night sky and they can move the night sky around so you can see different angles of the star formations but it's brilliant just how it is when there's, and it's in its pristine state and that's how it was this nearly whole week at Tamawata. and when I would finish teaching in the night um, it would get dark about 8.30 at night and we'd go up the fellow I was teaching with, and we would just stand and stare at the sky for like 15 or 20 minutes, just see what constellations we could pick out. Really magnificent feeling of vastness, of this boundlessness in this night sky. And for some reason, the first night, there wasn't any moon, and then the second night, there wasn't any moon. And, you know, usually at some point, the moon comes up. And then the third night, there wasn't any moon. The fourth night, there wasn't any moon. And then it started getting weird. <laughs> you know, it's like, how come there isn't any moon? Which also made the sky much more brilliant, because there wasn't even the moonlight, the brightness from, the, from a moon or any moon. So it started getting very strange, like, how come there's not a moon? You know, what happened to the moon? <laughs> and then the fifth night, you know, there's no moon. And I started asking people, "Where's what happened to the moon? And since we weren't, weren't reading the newspapers or, you know, paying attention, we actually started thinking that something, you know, maybe something really did happen to the moon. <laughs> and I never experienced anything like this before. And there was this, this sense that there was no moon, like the moon had just vanished. And the sixth night, there was no moon. And, but yet the sky, this brilliant, lit up sky, you know, it just it wasn't like anything was obscuring the moon. Vis- vis- visibly, there was just no moon. So it really got to be funny, you know, and kind of a weird feeling, like, you know, something, the, the world's changing or, you know, something strange is happening in the world and, you know, the moon vanishing. And then it was just this sense of this belief, you know, this view, this belief that was starting to form that there really was no moon. You know, and I could really sense it and I could start to feel, you know, even a little bit like that sense of my reality shifting because of this belief Something had happened, or something strange, or something's off, and that whole kind of sense of this shift beginning to happen due to that belief. I mean, clearly, (laughs) there couldn't have not been a moon, you know, but we couldn't see the moon, you know, we couldn't see the moon, so therefore, it appeared as if there was no moon. And so this appearance, the appearance of things, starts to actually make an impact on consciousness. This perception, the way we begin to perceive things, and then how it impacts our sense of reality and what we take to be reality. And I can, you know, even as I talk about it, I can start, I can start to sense that strange feeling you know, seven nights without seeing a moon in a bright, clear sky. You know? And then I think it was, you know, on the seventh night, I was actually starting to talk about it in the Dharma talks. <laughs> and so the yogis went out and they were starting to look for the moon. <laughs> and when we, just before the Dharma talk on the seventh night, there just over the hill was just this little point of the sliver of this little tiny new moon that was just coming up over the hill. And everybody got all excited. It was like, oh, there's the moon. There's the moon. It's like we found the moon. You know, we were like kids. You know? It's like, yeah, there is a moon. It was, you know, this whole this whole world just started to unravel for us around this moon. Of course, I started it. <laughs> this perception. But how easily we can start to Fabricate our reality based on this. You know, we were having fun with it. There was a sort of playfulness with it. And hopefully we can, you know, keep that playfulness around these perceptions. But I think it's really an important kind of way to begin to sense the way these perceptions start to become so real. You know, whether it's a thought in our own mind, or an image in our mind, or a feeling, or uh, uh, something that's starting to, you know, like a sensation in our knee that's just starting to show up and starting to build, and it's like, okay, what does that mean? Uh Uh-oh, if I keep sitting like this, I'm probably going to not be able to walk, and then what if I can't walk? Then um, I'm not going to be able to go on that hike next week, and, oh, but I don't really have... My my doctors in order, you know, whatever the whole the mind starts to build the reality around the bare contact, the bare perception. This is what we call papancha. Catherine mentioned it one night. This proliferation of thought that starts to uh, arise in the mind and uh, associate different ideas. Together and builds a kind of picture, a story, about me, about what's happening to me and my reality, this papancha. And if it's not seen for what it is, it becomes our reality. That becomes the way that we begin to perceive and feel and relate and engage based on that. And Sokni Rinpoche says, if we understand that things aren't the way they appear, there is lightness in the mind. There is lightness in the mind. Because we are in touch with right view. Right view. And the right view that we don't know, that we can't actually fix meaning, we can't fix this belief or these uh, concepts as the way things are, when we know that, when we bring some doubt, when we bring some uh, kind of, when we hold that lightly. I don't know. Or we play. We can be more playful. We feel this inner lightness. So one of the views that we, one of the strongest attachments, one of our strongest views that we get attached to is this sense of self, this sense of who we take ourselves to be. And what the Buddha points out is the, the main misconception is these five processes that make up our life that we usually identify with as who we are, these uh, five that what are called the five skandhas or the five aggregates, the bundles. These five which we identify which, which are called the body, the feelings, these feelings that move through us, our perceptions, our conceptions, our, all the mental activity, all the thought that, that moves through the mind, and consciousness, these five. I take my body to be myself. This is wrong view, the Buddha says. I take my feelings to be myself. This is wrong view. I take my perceptions, the way that I understand and perceive things, to be myself, my views. I take my mental activity to be myself. I take my consciousness to be myself. This is wrong view. This is the the misperception that gives rise to this fixed idea of who I am. And in the discourses, the Buddha says, this body is not self. These feelings are not self. These perceptions are not self. This mental activity is not self. Consciousness is not self. And we can see when we really take a look that we can't take ownership of any of these processes, these aggregates. We can't take ownership of them when we look closely. If you take your body to be yourself, then how come you can't make your body do what you want it to do? Be free of pain and be healthy and young and uh, beautiful. How, if we owned it, why not just make it do what you want? We can't. It seems like something else is happening in the body. Or our mental activity. If our mind was myself, then why can't I just control it and, in, and invite the thoughts I want and push away the thoughts I don't want? But it's—I don't seem to be able to have much to do with it. We say it's not myself. In a way, what we mean by that is I—I I can't take ownership of it. It has a selfless quality a selfless quality, because it seems this process operates on its own. And yet it doesn't discount the fact that there seems to be some capacity to intend or direct some kind of change or transformation. We do that with our mind to not get so caught up in the thought. So it seems that there is also some capacity that can be learned or cultivated where we start to work with all of this process. But then, is that myself? Is that myself? What is this self? What can I actually say is mine or me or I? Now, for us people the for those of us who have done some investigation into this self not self idea in Buddhist thought, I think it's pretty well, I think most people think that the Buddha said that there was no self. I think that that's you know that's one of the things that people pick up and it seems very confusing and, and very, um, very hard to think about or consider that there's no self. I mean, what do you mean it's not, not myself? But this is um, a quote that I read. It said, one teacher points out that many books try to answer questions about no self directly. But if you look at the Pali Canon, and the Pali Canon is the whole collection of the Buddha's discourses, all the teachings that we've collected of what the Buddha has said, you won't find this question addressed at all. In fact, the one place where the Buddha was asked point blank, the one place in the whole of the Pali Canon, which is about 10,000 discourses the one place where the Buddha was asked point blank whether or not there was a self he refused to answer that one place and he said, he said when later asked why he refused to answer he said that to hold either that there is a self or that there is no self is to fall into an extreme form of wrong view And if you do that, it makes the path of Buddhist practice impossible. Thus, the question should be put aside of whether there's a self or not a self. The question should be put aside. So that's not really what we're exploring here. We're really looking at what's true in our experience. What can we find upon evidence that we can actually take ownership of? and say, oh, this is me, you know, my emotions, this is me, or the thoughts that run through my mind, this is me, my body, this is me. I mean, how do we know that? What kind of evidence do we have is going to support that? Not that that, you know, when we have this sense that there, there's, like, I'm sitting here, that feels real, that feels true, okay. I don't have to refute that. But what we're really looking at is what gives rise to suffering? What gives rise to the dukkha? The fact that I'm sitting here and that I kind of feel a sense of presence and touch and sensations of my hands, and it's not, I don't feel any dukkha. I don't feel any suffering. So what's really the issue here? What are we really looking at? And once again, you know, as I was talking about last night, what it all comes back to is the clinging. There's no, the Buddha doesn't deny that there is a body, that there are feelings, that there are perceptions, that there is mental activity, that there is consciousness. These are conditions that arise and take form and manifest and exist and pass away. That's true. But the suffering comes, the dukkha comes, when we cling onto this, the body, or the feelings, and say, this is me, and form this whole story, this whole self-view, this whole idea about this is me moving in time, and this is what I have to do to protect myself, to guard myself, to take care of myself. All this kind of, kind of oppressive, the oppressive thought the impressive view we have about this separate entity that's separate from everything else and getting caught up in all of that. This is really what we're examining. It's hard to... Without real investigation, without real direct, clear looking, we might see, for example, when our emotions come, this rage or this anger or fear or guilt or any of these kinds of this is me. And what we don't see is that these are just changing conditions. It's just changing conditions. We can't find any meanness in it that lasts in time because it's constantly changing to something else. Even if we're feeling a kind of bliss or happiness or a pleasure, even that, if we cling on to that and we hold on to that and say, now it means that I'm really this wonderful meditator and I'm getting somewhere, this too is changing. You can't own that either. You can't be an owner of that either. We string all of these together and they give the illusion of a solid, separate self. But when we look directly, what's there? What's there? I always like the analogy of the old film strips that were the film that would be put in a projector and, and be projected onto a screen when you take the film out what you see are just little frames different still still scenes and when you put the film strip in the projector and you put light in there and you project it out and with the, with the generator, the electricity you get this illusion of a, of a movie or a story And and yet, when you look at what's really going on, it's just one still frame, and then the next still frame, and the next still frame, and the next still frame. And in the same way, it's like one mind moment, and then the next mind moment, and the next mind moment. And when you string them all together, there's this illusion of a story, the story of me. And we can begin to break this down into these mind moments and see this thought arising and passing and this feeling arising and passing and sensations arising, passing. And when we do that, we can really begin to investigate whether there's anything that's not changing that I can call me, this solid sense of myself. And why why would we want to do that? Why do we want to do that? Because we're very limited by these views. We feel very small, we feel very separate, we feel very isolated. We feel can we can feel cut off from life. And then this sense of having to defend and guard and become smaller and more isolated and more fearful. And then we get more cut off and more separated. And as we break this view up, as we start breaking this up and loosening this up, and we start to feel a little bit more space and we feel lighter and more open, there's a way we start to feel more connected, more engaged, more in touch with life as it's moving. We're not as guarded, we're not as defended, we're not as fearful. We start to feel more of a sense of this interconnection or a or a kind of more of a unity with not only parts of ourselves but with others and then with nature and with life and there's a sense of opening we call it this opening We don't feel then so small and so so isolated so limited we start to feel more of our sense of expansiveness or largeness or bigness, this connection, and this this sense can can start to become so expanded, and many people here have talked about this, we can start to feel so expanded that this can be almost a sense of feeling of boundlessness, like there's no boundaries, there's no limits, there's a kind of an infinite sense to how I feel, I am, this I amness. It doesn't feel so small. And we can have those kinds of experiences and then as I was talking last night, the patterns can kind of come back and sort of flood again and we feel caught in the smallness and then we keep with our practice and we keep on the path and then the expansion comes again. And we're really working with this way that we can misperceive this misperception, this wrong view about the way things are, who I take myself to be. One of the aspects of wrong view, this obsessive view, this papancha that the Buddha talks about, is called mana in Pali, and, and this is conceit. It's the way the ego takes shape into a form of conceit. And what we can do then is as we we form this particular kind of view about who we are, we can elevate ourselves. We can make ourselves starting to feel special, different than others, like because I have certain experiences or because I own certain things or I have certain happiness in my life or I have certain freedom in my life. We can start to build ourselves up. And it's another way that the ego can start to um, hijack our experiences and then start to form another solid view, which the Buddha calls conceit. I remember one time uh, some years ago when I was in India, uh, it was actually 1990, when I first met my, uh, my who I call my guru, uh, Poonjiji, uh in North India, and there was a small group of us. There were only about five friends. And um, we were very, very blessed to come across this teacher. He was in his 80s at the time, a, 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 a Brahmin, a Indian Brahmin. Amazing, wonderful man who had been teaching for a number of years, but he was more like a wandering sadhu. And so he couldn't really pin him down. He would you know, meet with people and give some teachings and then he would sort of disappear, walk off and, and uh, uh, you couldn't find him again and then he would sort of appear somewhere and then if you could catch him, you know, was really a, a blessing. And so it just so happened that he w- uh, was at his uh, uh, son's house in Lucknow for a little while and I happened to be in India so a group of f- some friends said, oh, come and meet this teacher. And so we had some uh, wonderful, wonderful experiences with Poonjaji. We were with him for about a month. And a um, lot of wonderful things were starting to happen, a lot of really ter- uh, uh, very deep and profound experiences with this teacher. And there was one friend who was with us who really wasn't really happening for he was a bit more confused, and he just didn't get the same kind of transmission that the four of us uh, were getting. And so I i didn't know this at the time. I didn't have the awareness at the time. But my friend and I, my girlfriend and I, who was also sharing in this really exalted kind of wonderful experience with me, we started talking about this other friend. Like, he doesn't really get it. <laughs> you know? Poor Bob, whatever his name is, poor Bob, you know. Gosh, you know, we're really having these amazing experiences, but he just doesn't get it. You know, what's wrong with him? You know, it's like so clear, it's as clear as night and day, and he's just, you know, and then we were just putting him down and thinking we were so special. And we were just having, you know, we were really getting, when we were, Papaji really liked us and favored us, and, you know, Bob, he didn't really care <laughs> about Bob, you know. And I didn't know. I really, I, at the time, I really believed my mind. I really believed what kinds of view I was forming around myself, about myself, and about Bob. And then this separation This conceit, this arrogance, this pride about my experiences and what I thought was happening for me. And just kind of this separating out, pushing him out a bit, feeling sorry for him, really. (coughs) You know, he was lagging behind. He wasn't going to get enlightened, you know. Just this... (laughs) And, you know, almost 20 years later now, he's still my friend actually <laughs> and it's so wonderful to just see things from where i am now and see that's just so conceited you know this this very thing that the buddha is talking about you know how we we can take these particular kinds of experiences and make something out of them and then separate isolate cut off from somebody and it's so clear now that we both have our own individual process. You know, everyone has their own way, their own unfolding that has magic in it, that has perfection in it, that it's all has has it's all the way it needs to be. It's so that conceit. We can form these views around these happy, these good feelings that we have. I like reading this um, short story you may have heard before. One day, a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody the shamus, the custodian, uh, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> <laughs> spiritual humility. (laughs) We can form a view around anything and get lost in it and create separation. Is it true? And in the same way, conceit isn't only an elevation in the Buddhist teachings. It isn't only elevation, but it's any way we make ourselves special, we single ourselves out, we we separate ourselves, and we do that too when we judge ourselves When we have critical or negative thoughts about ourselves, when we, when we think that we're very small and weak and less than, and we compare ourselves to others, and oh, they're really having such a good experience, and I'm just trudging along, and I'm never going to get anywhere at all, and I'm never going to get enlightened, you know, or any way that we begin to judge ourselves. And and again, that, that's a form of conceit any kind of way we this this, this particularising, making ourselves we, 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 we it's like cutting ourselves out from the whole. We're no longer connected to the whole, but we've singled ourselves out. It's sort of like when Catherine was was talking about the, her her waves and the ocean metaphor. This this story kept coming to my mind that Papaji would talk about. And in this respect of how we single ourselves out, Papaji used to t- used to mention. He said, "You know, it's just like when if there's one wave that says to the other wave, can you tell me the way to the ocean? I'm lost.'" Oh, no. <laughs> The wave <laughs> thinks it's separate from the ocean. You know, Tell me the way. I don't know the way. And yet the wave is imbued with the ocean, <laughs> lives live through and is essentially of the same matter but we we misperceive we we get we think we're lost it's the view it's the it's this erroneous view so this conceit we do this by characterizing ourselves around one thought We can characterize ourselves around one thought thinking we're a good person or a bad person or a success or a failure or an angry person or a stuck person or whatever it is. This is who I am. And I wonder, you know, we do this so habitually. I really wonder, you know, brings the question of are we really the best person to evaluate who we are? how, you know, we're just so stuck in our own views. How can we see clearly at all? You know, it's so, it's so obvious sometimes when you can see such loveliness and beauty in another person, and they can't see it themselves. and And then somebody sees your loveliness and your beauty, and it's like, ah... Oh. Can't, I just can't see them. I can't feel it. And yet we can see it and sense it and feel it in others. It's so hard, you know, so hard to to, to contact that, to find essence to that in ourselves because of this, the way we, we particularize these ideas and views about who we are. So you might want to reflect for a moment right now if there's any particular thought or view or idea you have about yourself that you're characterizing yourself around it might be something about your being here on retreat how you think of yourself as a practitioner, as a yogi it might have been just a view that's arisen today or maybe one that stayed for a few days Consider for a moment what view are you believing about yourself? And then, for a moment, just bring some doubt to this view. Is it true? How do you know it's true? Who would you be if you let go of this thought? Try that for a moment. Who would you be right now if you let go of this thought? What happens? A thought can be so binding takes so much energy. This is a piece from uh, Dr. Robert Thurman, who's a Buddhist scholar. He says, in the normal cycling of thought, we have lots of very tight little circuits that pattern our thinking. A lot of energy is tied up in that. So when we come to meditate and begin to slow the thinking pattern down or even abandon the thoughts and see them float away, this can tend to be a very powerful experience for us. To suddenly be suspended in space-time for a few moments of our life without thinking about what we are doing or who we are, suddenly there is so much more energy released by getting out of that tight little circuit we can feel calm or like we're floating. We might even feel like we've attained something. So much energy gets released when we get out of these tight little thinking patterns. You know? And this gives a sense of lightness and space and ease and sense of well-being. Is what we're examining. So, really, what I want to, I hope that you're getting a sense of, and it's kind of woven in this a little this talk a little bit, but I want to bring it back: is that we're not trying to get rid of our personalities. We're not trying to erase this sense of who we are and the way that we express ourselves we're just wanting to look at what gives rise to the dukkha we're not trying to get rid of ourselves <laughs> sometimes even the buddhist language we can be thinking that way like we're we're trying to eradicate this sense of ourselves but that isn't really what's being talked about here we're not trying to get rid of anything except what gives rise to Dukkha, to the suffering. And when we're not clinging anymore to the conditions of life, the conditions, whether it's emotions or thoughts, or sights, sounds, tastes, smells, feels, all of that, we're not clinging to it anymore. Then life is moving. <sighs> life is moving through us. Life is manifesting, is expressing itself, is, is living through us through this vehicle. We're not trying to get rid of that. In fact, as we start to let go and loosen up these tight little circuits, more energy is freed up to be more of who we are and to express ourselves more fully. To be more alive, to be more engaged, to have more... This, this expression of ourselves starts to grow. We see that all of this is, are these, these, these changing conditions. Just the conditioned realm of change. And then we can really enjoy, enjoy this manifestation. That's why as we free up, even when we have these very, difficult feelings of uh, a sadness or guilt or fear, even then they can have this sweet quality to them. Maybe you've experienced that. It's not so, we're not so ugh, caught in the pain of it. There's a sweetness, it's all we could, bittersweet. It's like a, a sweetness because the because all experiences is imbued with this wisdom and insight, and consciousness. We feel that sweetness. There's a smell of the selflessness, the perfume of the selfless nature. It's coming through all experience, all the conditions, because we're not holding on or trying to fix or or defining ourselves by any of it. And as this identification starts to get weaker and this grasping starts to get weaker, that sense of meanness starts to get weaker. This sense of being this kind of small, defined, limited, isolated being, it starts to weaken. And this I is not as demanding on life, expecting of life, and where, we, where we have access to this bounty of life, the abundance of life that is here, this offering of life that is here, we, we, we see that that demand and that expectation keeps us so, it keeps us limited to such particular things, narrow, a narrow view of things. And as we let go, everything is here. This is from Kalu Ripachei great Tibetan master we live in illusion and the appearance of things there is a reality you are that reality when you understand this you will see that you are nothing and being nothing you are everything that is all being nothing you are everything That is all. Because you're not limiting yourself by anything, so you are everything, have access to everything. Walt Whitman said, I didn't know I could be so large. tanisara Biko says self-identification ultimately dies away and what is left is limitless freedom. Limitless freedom. I want to end by reading this um, reading this from Roger Keyes. I think it really expresses this feeling that we touch into as we start to break up this self identification. I brought my stronger glasses tonight. <laughs> Hokusai says, it's the name of it. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there is no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing. You just get more of who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it. Repeat yourself as long as it is interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Love, feel, Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. This is not about the erasing of anything, but the living, living in the fullness of our capacity as human beings, (coughs) our potential as human beings. And as we do that, then we can make a difference. Not only a difference in our own life, but in making a difference for the lives of all those who walk this earth. Let life live through you. Let's sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening.